Welcome to The Wealth Evolution, a detailed exploration of Ireland's remarkable economic journey. From its humble beginnings as an economically underperforming nation to one that is now fast creating wealth, but has yet to build out the same investment infrastructure enjoyed by other advanced economies. This podcast is hosted by me, economist and author Michael Sullivan, in conjunction with Unio Wealth Management. I'll be joined by experts from the worlds of economics, finance, history and business as we make sense of Ireland's economic evolution, the growth of wealth and our attitudes towards it. So if you're an experienced investor or just getting started, we hope this will prove an insightful discussion and I hope you learn something about the world of investing and come away with a deeper appreciation of wealth creation and Ireland's role in it. You're listening to The Wealth Evolution, brought to you by Michael Sullivan in association with Unio Wealth Management, guiding, guarding and growing wealth in Ireland. Ireland is an old country with a new economy and increasingly new broad-based wealth. With little real economic infrastructure, Ireland stands out as a European country with yet a small historical wealth base. In this first episode, we explore Ireland's economic development. We examine our attitudes to wealth and how they're changing. We ask what a well-developed investment infrastructure might look like and consider how we can give up the historic boom-bust approach to put our money to work, building the domestic economy to produce new, innovative companies grown out of Ireland. To kick off our journey, I turned to Tony Shorrocks, a renowned economist and global authority on wealth data and the mastermind behind an enthralling database that tracks wealth across nations. I start by asking Tony if he could expand on the current state of global wealth, where it has come from and how Ireland stacks up against other European nations. Tony, you're very welcome to the Wealth Evolution uh, podcast. Can I start by just mapping out wealth um, and maybe you can help us understand how much wealth is there, how do you measure it, and what are the wealthiest countries? Well, I think the first starting point is to say that uh, we have to distinguish wealth from income. That's a common uh, mistake. Our concept of wealth refers to net worth. It's essentially the value of all the assets that households own, and they are able to sell. Less, of course, uh, what they owe in the, in the form of debts. So this covers real estate, buildings, land, financial assets like savings, uh, shares and bonds. Uh, but also we have the debts include mortgages, loans, uh, credit and debit cards, that type of thing. In terms of what, uh, how much wealth there is, uh, our latest estimates say that uh, household wealth in the world amounted to 465 trillion US dollars. US dollars is the standard by which we convert all the currencies so we can aggregate them together. Uh, that sounds like a number which doesn't make any sense, but it's easier perhaps to convert it into the equivalent per adult. And that turns out now to be 87,500, the average in terms of the mean in at the end of 2021. Back in uh, 2000, it amounted to 31,400. So there's been a rise in average wealth of about 5% in terms of nominal USD, although it's less than that, of course, in, when you uh, adjust for inflation. If you ask what are the wealthiest countries, uh, that turns out to be United States, China and Japan. The interesting thing there is that Japan 
at the turn of the century actually had something like three times the wealth of China. But uh, Japan has been stagnant growth really in, in Japan for pretty well the last 20 years, whereas China's rapidly increased. And so it now is uh, uh, much above the Japanese level. The other countries which have uh, the highest wealth levels are Germany, Britain, France and India. They're the next four countries. So, Tony, this is quite an array of countries um, in, in Europe uh, and, and in Asia and, of course, the US. Historically, where has wealth come from? Where, how do people become wealthy? If you, if you look back 100 years, then essentially most, of the, uh, most people had very little wealth. And the personal wealth was very much associated with landed property. And this was passed on from generation to generation. What has happened since then, in particular is that there's been a rapid spread of owner-occupied housing. Uh, that was true in the, certainly during the 20th century, that was a, a central feature of the growth of wealth amongst the general population was this expansion of uh, owner-occupied housing. And then more recently, it's been to do with um, pensions. These are, this is where uh, we notice that wealth is uh, it's becoming an increasing component of, of personal wealth. So this is for the the average person. But if you look at the richest people, I think there's a different uh, take on it there. Again, early on, it was these landed land and property which were dominant. I think after the Second World War, we saw a big rise in things like um, manufacturers, successful business people in different sorts of ways, a lot of retailing People like, um, I mean, Walmart, this would be a classic sort of example of the people that were thriving in the uh, post-war period. And then more recently, I think there's been quite a noticeable expansion in the number of people that get wealthy from what I would say was the people able to capitalize on their ideas. And what I have in mind here is things like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, various sorts of hedge fund managers. These are people who essentially are not so much in manufacturing, not so much in retailing, but they've managed to have ideas and convert these into a very big business empire. And, and Tony, uh, many of those companies you've mentioned now have their European headquarters in Ireland, which is helping to make Ireland a wealthier place, but that hasn't always been the, the case. Can, can you help track the level and the evolution of Irish wealth, especially compared to its peer nations? What has happened, at least I, I was uh, comparing the, uh, the Irish wealth levels with the UK and also the average for Europe. I think what's been is very evident is that the level of uh, wealth in Ireland is much above the average a European level, uh, probably at least a factor of two. This was partly because it was reinforced by the fact that the exchange rates were appreciating against the US dollar. So there's a sort of uh, exchange rate influence there. And then in both the UK and the Ireland, wealth per adult peaked in 2007. So, Tony, just to give our listeners some hard numbers, in dollar terms, if we go back to 2007, wealth per adult in Ireland was about 333,000. Uh, that dropped heavily. It's now recovered. Uh, it's close to $250,000 per adult in Ireland. Um, that's about the same Tony is France and Germany, just still a little bit under the UK 
And as you say, it's twice the European average. And those are big numbers. uh, And they bring up the question of the distribution of wealth and wealth inequality. And Tony, wealth inequality is a really big international political issue today. How extreme is it? And what do you think high interest rates mean for wealth and for wealth inequality? Well, let's start with wealth inequality first. Um, It's high everywhere. Everyone knows this. It has always been high in comparison, for example, with income. Our estimates suggest that the top 10% in Ireland own 64% of household wealth. So this is about average for Europe, but it's higher than the UK, where the share is about, uh, the equivalent share is about 55% for the top 10%. The other thing which is perhaps uh, worthy of mention is that the gap between the UK and Ireland has been increasing over the last 20 years. If we look and ask ourselves, what what is the impact of higher interest rates on uh, wealth and wealth inequality? I think there's two impacts there. First of all, it does help people who have savings accounts because we've seen in the past uh, years that savings rates, interest on savings rates have been particularly low. Now, as they go up, people, the savers are benefit from that. But at the same time, and perhaps more important, is the fact that higher interest rates tend to depress asset prices. And Tony, finally, to put all this in context, um, in, and particularly in the context of the, the economy, uh, what do you think uh, the role of wealth or investment infrastructure plays? And when I, when I say that, I mean things like investment funds, regulation, education. What role does that play in helping an economy grow? Well, I think in general, uh, there is a, it's quite clear that the economic infrastructure is very important to, to wealth um, creation. You see this when you look at developing countries and you see how they are increasing their wealth. As they grow, as GDP grows, wealth tends to go up. But also the, the wealth to GDP ratio tends to increase as these uh, various sorts of institutions and the economic institutions improve. So we see as countries develop initially that the wealth to GDP ratio might be something of the order of two, and it can go up to perhaps five or six for the, the, the most developed countries. Something like China, if you look at the China's history over the last 20 years, that's exactly what's happened. They've not only grown wealth because their GDP's increased, but they've also grown wealth because the infrastructure uh, has improved and the institutions have improved and that's allowed them to uh, go ahead like that. So basically the answer here is, yes, institutions are important, but they're most important to countries which are at low levels of development. As it gets to high levels, it becomes you know, quite difficult to see or, or to at least identify in the data how uh, you get the continuation of improvements that uh, you would wish to see, perhaps. Tony, thank you very much for that. that. That's really helpful and really insightful. Thank you. Next up is monetary policy expert Stefan Gerlich, chief economist at EFG Bank in Zurich and who served as deputy governor of the Central Bank of Ireland. Stefan, you're very welcome. Thank you for your time. Stefan, when when you first arrived in Ireland, you had experience of other tiger economies, notably in Asia. How would you characterise what happened to the Irish economy in the post-Celtic tiger era? Well, so I arrived in Dublin in the summer of 2011. 
And of course, this was in the depth of the crisis, and there was an enormous amount of focus on the property market. And as you know, I, I served as chief economist at the Hong Kong Monetary Authority uh, almost exactly a decade earlier. And of course, in Hong Kong as well, there's an enormous focus on the on the property market. So in some sense, I sort of uh, I sort of felt I'd seen this before when I when I arrived uh, when I arrived in Dublin. And, and Stefan, you have a lot of experience of Ireland's peer uh, economies, other small advanced economies, be it Sweden, Switzerland, you mentioned Hong Kong. How does Ireland stack up and compare to those in terms of the development and quality of its investment in wealth infrastructure? And, and maybe tell us why these matter. Yeah, so that is actually related to my first uh, uh, first point there about the, the property market. So first, I think in terms of the big picture, before we talk about the property market, in terms of the big picture, Ireland became wealthy much later than these other economists and essentially got wealthy in one generation. So it's, it's not surprising that sort of the investment mindset and the wealth infrastructure is lagging behind um, these other economies. As you know, here in Switzerland, there are an enormous number of, of banks uh, catering to um, yeah, high wealth in individuals and, and help them in invest their money and so on. And, and, and that was uh, lacking, I think, in Ireland. And I think that was simply because wealth came so late into, the, uh, into Irish life uh, uh, in Irish society, if, if you like, that that sort of hadn't had time to de develop. And a large part of that was, was sort of tied to the property market, I think. And Stefan, with your uh, economist's hat on, why is this idea of investment infrastructure important? Why is it important to have good investment managers, wealth managers, etc.? Uh, let's take a step back, right? And... Um, so when I came to Ireland, there was very much the sense then that, you know, if you had wealth, you invested it in property. And before that, you had invested it in the banks because traditionally banking was seen as a safe investment uh, in Ireland. If you go back to 50 years or so on and so forth. And you could see this sort of in the public discourse, right? The focus was very much of young people getting onto the property ladder. There was a dislike, I think, of institutional investors and build-to-rent schemes and so on and so forth. Because investment saving for the future was essentially the same thing, I, I thought, as buying property. Um, and, you know, people struck me as almost a little careless about pensions and investing for retirement. Uh, these are, of course, hugely important issues that one has to think on early early on in, in life, the pat solution in Dublin seemed to be just, you know, buy some apartments and, and rent them out. But if you, once you sort of think about it, right, rental properties take time to manage. And of course, there are returns to scale that you cannot capture if you only rent out one or two apartments, right? They offer virtually no diversification. If you have a downturn in the Irish economy, you probably have a downturn in the property market. So if you have your assets in property, you will have a downturn just as the economy turns badly. And of course, there are problems managing, or there can be problems managing relationships with tenants, and it can be difficult to reclaim and sell a property. And moreover, transactions costs in the property markets are high, and it's a bit of an all of nothing sort of decision. You, you either buy a property, you can't just sort of buy a garage, or you can't just sell a garage. You, you buy a big chunk of real estate or not at all. 
And if you think about other countries uh, where you have much more of a culture investing in in uh, financial assets, well, you don't have any of those any of those problems, uh, if you like. So the the discussion and about investing retirement schemes, pensions, and so on and so forth. That whole debate struck me as very, you know, outdated, I would say, uh, by the standards of many other European uh, countries, perhaps not of Hong Kong, because there was the same set there. But, you know, in Switzerland, as you well know, people don't, if you if you want to save for your retirement, you, you buy some financial instruments, you don't buy another property. Um, so it was a very different that mindset. So, Stefan, I guess ideally in the in the long term future, Ireland will have more people investing in private companies, in maybe things like private equity, but certainly portfolios that are balanced across different kinds of security and that they're just much better diversified. Yeah, that's what the situation is like. Yeah, like here, right? You, you in, in Switzerland, you, you know, my the bank I work for caters to people with, with, um, you know, substantial assets, as many people in Switzerland have, and they, they, they invest in various financial instruments, well diversified portfolios to lower the amount of risk they hold, and uh, and so on. And I think that would be the natural natural thing but also in Ireland but that has not yet developed and I think the explanation is uh, simply I think and I, I, I've spoken to some economic historians and they sort of suggest simply wealth is some, something so new in Ireland it goes back 30 or 40 years Ireland opened up the international trade in the early 1960s that is sort of people haven't really sort of gotten that into their DNA yet but that would happen. Let me ask your advice uh, and put you on the spot so you Stefan you're very experienced in policymaking, investing, what classic or wise rules of thumb would you give to people who want to, to, who want to invest? Well, I think my first uh, piece of advice, and I think, um, uh, you know, for anyone in Ireland who has a history of boom-bust cycles, is that, you know, once the newspapers start asking the question, is there a bubble, then I think um, regardless of what conclusion they come to, it's probably a good idea to assume that there is a bubble and and start worrying. Uh, um, you know, while property swings uh, has in many countries been, uh, well, when property markets rise a, a lot, risks rise. So that I think is an important thing. Another important thing is of course to have a well diversified portfolio so that you're not exposed if some sector for instance or some individual economy um, has a recession, but diversify and, and worry about bubbles. Uh, I think these are my two pieces of advice for for, uh, for investors. And Stefan, now a final question with your uh, economist's hat on. Uh, we're now definitively into an environment of high interest rates. What long-term effects will this have on wealth and businesses? For, for me and many, many other commentators, I think, I mean, this sort of signals in many ways a return to normality. We are, you know, interest rates... Uh, yeah, normally positive, two, three, four, five percent, something like that. It's not normal to have interest rates that are essentially zero or even below zero the way they were here in Switzerland until, until last uh, summer. So it's a good sign. And of course, you know, that means that uh, it's become attractive again to buy, to buy bonds and invest in bonds. Uh, uh, many investors were not very happy holding bonds when they yielded nothing or or just a few basis points. So, so I think, uh, I mean, this, this is 
is a good this is a good sign. We will again see investors wanting to have diversified portfolios consisting both of bonds and equities. Now I worry in Ireland that interest rates rising will mean that private land private sector of landlords they want to leave the market because the mortgage repayments have gone up and they can't cover them with the rent. And I think that's another indication that just investing all your wealth in the property market is not the right way to go. Uh, rather, with interest rate back to some more some normal level, I think we should we should have portfolios and we should invest in ways that are more sort of traditional, holding a mixture of assets. And of course, you could ho hold some property in that as well, but holding bonds and equities as well, I think, just would be a more natural thing. So we're back to normality, which I think is a is a very good thing. Stefan, thanks very much for that. We'll heed your warnings on bubbles, on real estate, uh, and we'll take your advice on portfolios and, and diversification. Thanks very much. And my final guest on this episode, I have Sean O'Rean, Professor of Sociology at the National University of Ireland, Maynooth. Sean, great to talk to you today. When you and I first started debating and discussing the Irish economy, it was in the, the post-Celtic Tiger uh, period, a predictable but painful chapter in Irish economic history. Just standing back from that now, what are the socioeconomic lessons from it? Uh, hi, Mike. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Um, I, I think a large part of the Irish story is the way that the, the, the two kind of parts to our story that are constantly entangled together. You know, there's a kind of a, a speculative part and then there's the kind of real changes in the real economy and what we're able to do. And I think you see those in the Celtic Tiger in a big way. You know, this kind of, we ride the wave of what's going on in the global economy, kind of for better or worse, for better in the 90s with foreign investment, for worse then with the kind of financial bubble of the 2000s. And we have an incredible tendency to create, to recover from crises, but then to, you know, discover a new crisis out of the recovery. So, but then hidden behind all of that, there's also... You know, really, over the long run, the 30, 40 years, there are stories of serious progress, the upgrading of foreign investment, you know, and successes in the indigenous sector, state enterprise policies being reasonably successful, expansion of education, social investment, so on. So I think, you know, in a way, the lesson is to, to really try and even even not just build on those real parts of the economy, but to even be able to see them behind the the, the kind of bubble fraughtiness of, of a lot of our statistics and so on. So to look at what's really happening and to see how we can support that and develop it further and build on it. So, so it seems like we have this almost Jekyll and Hyde economy, the, the speculative part uh, and then the real productive part. Um, how do you think that that's conditioned Irish attitudes to, to wealth and, and how would you sum up Irish attitudes to wealth today? Well, I suppose historically, you know, there was a huge focus on property as a source of wealth, not necessarily, you know, as a source of investment wealth, but uh, in a way as a source of security and also then at times as kind of a windfall. When there was a boom, you know, property was a way to cashing in and property was a way to take advantage of the boom. So in that sense, that idea of wealth really probably didn't contribute an awful lot to the investment side of the economy, but at the same time, probably amplified some of the, the bubble tendencies. And you really see that in the 2000s, I suppose, which is when you put that together with international borrowing, it, it got way out of control, out of the out of scale with the rest of the economy. But I think the big thing with wealth is it, it's not only about um, attitude. You know, one way to, to look at this is it's like the field, you know, Richard Harris in the field, like 
that field is mine and that's that it's kind of almost a, a kind of a atavistic attitude to it but actually a lot of it is just what's possible within our institutions and and we probably have had a week set of alternatives to that uh you know we've a weak public pension we've very fragmented pension funds we have passive banks you know there's a lot of different aspects there that make that, that don't really offer good alternatives to people aside from property so you know maybe we're starting to see some movement in that but that that's probably where i think there's probably a a, a hidden a desire in the population for alternatives to this kind of boom and bust thing of property that you could actually you know as you, if you do accumulate bits of wealth that you could actually use it to invest in the progress of the economy and and the society and i guess if we if we you know thank john b keen for the uh, his genius in capturing what we might call old attitudes to wealth um one of the the recurring discussions we've had is you know on ireland's peer group uh, other small advanced economies be it sweden belgium uh, denmark and they have more uh, developed and grown up, if you like, attitudes to to wealth. H- how do you think we get to that point where we have a more, if you like, balanced attitude to wealth? I think a lot of it is about giving giving people realistic kind of channels or pathways, you know, from the small wealth holder up to, you know, the really, really large uh, funds and so on. And giving, kind of creating those channels into, you know, being able to use your, your um finance in a way that you know has a broader impact and it gives you a decent return and so on and it's true what you say about Denmark and Sweden and so on but even there they you know they're vulnerable to their own bubbles so a lot of the time there is that kind of sense that you have to regulate the more speculative side but you also want to kind of drive out the bad with the good so I think we the more that we can develop you know better channels for people to be able to put and anything from a small pot of wealth up to, you know, through kind of a, a pension investment up to like really big funds. You know, that I think that's really key because I, I often think, you know, you can regulate the bad, but are the, you know, the dangerous or whatever. But you really what really keeps you going is to kind of drive out the bad with the good. Uh, I, I coach a bit of juvenile sports and I often think you can tell people what not to do. But actually, the most important thing to do is to try and build the good habits, of what you should do and. That applies to the to the society as well. So, so Sean, that that's a good point. You you you've talked about the channels, and a lot of the the public debate in Ireland focuses, as you say, on on the bad. Do you want to just outline what you think uh, a proper wealth and investment infrastructure or those channels you talked about might look like? Yeah, because we we probably have a, 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 a in a way we've been distracted by the two thousands bubble from the persistent features of our financial system and, and in a way we've kind of returned to to our old model which was you know we actually have a fairly small banking uh system in in comparative terms uh and so we rely a lot on shadow banking or maybe venture capital or elements like REITs and so on so so we don't have a very and we also have very fragmented pension funds so so those don't play the kind of uh, as a as a sector as a whole that that sector doesn't play the the kind of patient investment role that it does, let's say in continental Europe. So it's about really developing that kind of medium to long term patient productive investment infrastructure, and and I would say there's there's two key parts to that. Um, one one is a public part, and we see it in um, 
the the ISIF um, Strategic Investment Fund and in the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland. And I suppose the state has always been involved in the, on that side in Ireland, like prompting Enterprise Ireland and prompting venture capital funds and so on. And the Strategic Banking Corporation is a more systematic um, way of doing that. And like the evaluations of that, there was an evaluation in 2019 that was really quite positive on its impact on lending to SMEs, delivery of government programs, accessing EU money and so on. So I think that's a tool that we can really develop and use to anchor investment behavior going forward and there's a there's a big like going into the future and and there's another there's a big impact of that also in that it has borrowed from i suppose the kfw in germany the on lending model so it doesn't often doesn't lend directly but works through banks and non-bank lenders and, and that is very important in terms of reshaping those other lenders and their capabilities and so on. And Sean, that's the, the public side or the state side. What what about the, the private sector? What can the private sector do and how can that develop? The other pillar then, I think, is on the, the, the large kind of patient private side. And I suppose pension funds are key there. We, we do have a very fragmented sector compared to other countries with, you know, uh, many, many, many funds, often with only one or two uh, members. So what you lose there is the kind of buildup of scale that allows funds to invest and, and to shape kind of the, the investment kind of horizon and portfolio, portfolios. So we probably need to consolidate that uh, more. That, that also reduces risk for the pension holders. But um, it also gives you centers within the pension sector that can drive that patient productive investment because at the moment only you know there's only a few of those in in the Irish uh, pension sector, whereas, you know, we could really be getting much more in terms of um, patient kind of productive investment out of out of uh, the pensions funds. Sean, thank you very much. Uh, you, you, you've done a great job of mapping the way from the, the bad old days of the collapse of the Celtic Tiger uh, towards a vision of what this new uh, investment infrastructure might look like. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for joining me on our first episode of The Wealth Evolution as we chart Ireland's emerging wealth culture. A big thank you to our guests, Tony Shorrocks, Sean O'Rean and Stefan Gerlich, who shared their invaluable insights. Join us again on the next episode as we continue to explore the many facets of Ireland's remarkable journey towards prosperity. Until then, thank you for listening. The Wealth Evolution Brought to you by Michael Sullivan in association with Unio Wealth Management. Guiding, guarding and growing wealth in Ireland. Unio Financial Services Limited, trading as Unio Wealth Management, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. This podcast does not constitute investment advice. <laughs>